Welcome to the Just Get Started podcast. I'm your host, Brian Andreco, and thanks for being a part of this journey. This podcast is all about the getting started moments because, let's face it, the first step toward accomplishing anything can be the hardest part. And we cover all the bases. I bring on guests to share their getting started moments and how they overcame obstacles and pressed on, how they built their business from the ground floor, or how they took a chance on themselves to follow their purpose. I also share some solo episodes where I narrate and expand on many of the blog articles I've written around getting started and some of the lessons I've learned along the way. This podcast has been a labor of love for the last several years, and I'm grateful to have you join along and support me on this journey. I hope you enjoy this episode, so let's get it started. On this week's episode, I welcome in Matt Golden, who is the co-founder and CEO of MapHabit, which is an NIH award-winning care management, dementia training, and cognitive engagement platform that utilizes procedural memory to bolster independence, coordinate care, and enhance the quality of life for individuals and their caregivers. MapHabit is used in dozens of care delivery organizations and payers who are looking to offer the next level of care management and drive customer loyalty. I hope you all enjoy my conversation with Matt. So without further ado, please welcome in Matt Golden. Matt, welcome to the podcast. Glad to have you, man. Good to be here too. Thanks, Brian. Yeah, nice to virtually meet you, which is awesome. Um, someday maybe we'll meet IRL. That's the, the dice of Zoom, but also um, the world as it's uh, interconnected with these things. So uh, fun to connect um, and have you on here. And I, I'm really intrigued, you know, a lot of the folks I have on, obviously, all these different getting started stories and moments and things that trigger different events in their lives that take them down a different path. And, you know, I was curious today, really talk about what you're doing now with Map Habit and kind of the genesis of that story, um, how that started and, you know, really how that's taken form over the last, you know, couple of years or so. So I guess if I can prompt you to begin, maybe give a quick background of Map Habit. We're going to get into it a ton. Um, and then I'd love to hear, where have you found was there a, was there a moment an idea that popped in your head was it more recent before starting it did it happen a long time ago because some of these things I know take forever to actually formulate but curious kind of the genesis moment of map habit and how that idea came to fruition sure yeah so we we started map habit in 2018 uh, both myself and my co-founder Dr. Stuart Zola effectively in short it's a an app that helps caregivers who are supporting those with uh, Alzheimer's disease and related dementia and also uh, for individuals with intellectual and developmental disabilities really build habits through visual step-by-step maps to help really break down daily routines into bite-sized chunks that people can do on their own. That's just the high level of it. But uh, Map Habit really, in my mind, uh, had its genesis in 2004, about 13 years before we actually started the company. It was my uncle Byron, who was a huge mentor in my life. He got me my first computer when I was probably around 10 years old. Uh, He was an entrepreneur in his own right. And, uh, you know, we started seeing some changes in him. Uh, He couldn't calculate the tip on the bill after going to the same restaurant that we went to for a long time. And then he started having trouble controlling his reactions when talking to people that uh, he's known for a long time or even brand new people. He just was losing that ability. And then one thing led to the next where he just wasn't able to make his favorite meals like a chicken quesadilla for lunch 
to then not being able to uh, really dress himself and you know bathe himself, which then became way too much for our family to handle. So it was really kind of myself watching him go through that and how that impact impacted my my aunt and my cousins and and really how few practical tools people have to stay independent. It was that experience back in 2004, uh, you know, even a couple of years before that, uh, when when he passed, uh, is really what got me interested in, in helping people who have these neurodegenerative diseases. Mm. So yeah. what did it, so, you know, I was like, you know, I was curious. So 2004 to 2018, right? So there's a, there's a gap there. When did this start to formulate to say, wait a minute, there's something here. There, there's something we can do to help people. When did that, I guess, pick back up in your head? Or did, was it always kind of there and you're looking for the right time to do something or? So it, it was there, but uh, I had basically a, a, a really growing career in management consulting where I was traveling both domestically and internationally initially for big four consulting firms and then off on my own for, for about 10 years. And I was, I was doing, I was having a lot of fun. I was, uh, you know, single when I first started it, uh, going to all these great cities and, um, getting lots of corporate experience, solving problems. Uh, but at the end of the day, it, it really wasn't fulfilling for me when I was waking up in the morning. I felt like I was doing the same thing. I was doing a, you know, a, a new corporate execs bidding effectively by basically reversing uh, this whole transformation project that the, the prior uh, person to, to them had, had put in place. So th- that kind of whole mindset, while it paid well, I just wasn't enjoying it, and I didn't see that uh, that that increase, uh, you know, opportunities to learn uh, and to to challenge myself and do something totally different. So it was really at the end of my consulting career in um, where I had a local gig at the Coca-Cola company in Atlanta, Georgia, where it was, I had to make a, a choice. Do I try to get yet another couple of years out of that consulting or go full time into a role that, as I mentioned, I just wasn't excited about. Yeah. Uh, so it was, it was really that for me where I kind of reached that plateau in my kind of mid-career crisis, if you will, uh, that I was just looking for other opportunities. And it was when I was talking with my soon-to-be co-founder, uh, Stu, as he was walking his dog and learning a little bit about him as a, as a behavioral health neuroscientist that has started another successful company out in Silicon Valley, Valley and also uh, had just a great career uh, doing clinical research, both at the Department of Veterans Affairs and at Emory University, and him having these these additional, uh, basically, ideas on, on how to tap into people's uh, memory systems of the brain that are still intact as people age, as people have Alzheimer's disease, like my uncle had, where I was just absolutely fascinated about that because I've never had healthcare experience. I never really built something from an idea into a product that could be scaled on my own. I always you know, had the infrastructure and the benefit of resources of large companies, but on a startup. And when you do an entrepreneurial venture, you really got to bootstrap this and, and, and do it all on your own. So it was kind of the combination of me losing a little bit of the corporate America excitement and having a personal experience that I knew many, many more people are going to start to have those same experiences as time goes on that, that really flipped the switch and said, all right, you got to go for this. 
so before we go down the path, I'm actually curious because I, because I, this happens a lot. This happened to me as well. So maybe, you know, age wise, it happened to you, but I was kind of in my late twenties where I started to like question, like, is this it? Is like, this what I'm going to do? You know, I was a, a PJ professional. I used to teach golf and had a teaching business here in the, in the Raleigh Durham area. So like, it was fun. It was exciting, but it was like, again, is this it? And then I had those, again, it was over many years of just kind of like draining myself with thoughts. Is, is that kind of what you went through? It was like, hey, I'm going to do this job. I'm going to kind of grow my way in a company. And then eventually I was like, really? Like, is this what I really want to do? Is that what happened to you? Or is there something different? Yeah, I, in essence, that's how it went down for me too. I've uh, just been doing a lot of these, what are called enterprise resource planning. They're kind of corporate uh, uh, systems like SAP to help mm -hmm. with back office accounting. Uh, and then in uh, the, the cloud migrations that were moving these large company-owned data centers into the cloud, there was a lot of work there and it paid well and it was, it was challenging. You're taking mainframe databases that have been around for 40 years and, and now making them so that they can live in an AWS instance and, and be fully, uh, you know, detethered from uh, what has been going on for 40 years. That, that sounded exciting, but at the end of the day, it was, it just, it just wasn't, it just wasn't for me. I just, I just wasn't loving it. And in, in consulting, it, it's great to get lots of experiences and, and, and see different industries and work with a lot of people and, and really accelerates your, um, I guess, your marketability. I feel like consulting allows you to, to kind of be put under pressure where you have to perform. And it's great when you're starting your career or, you know, if you've had a corporate job for a long time and you want to bounce around a little bit, but I, I started my career in consulting and, you know, that was 2001. And by 2017, I've been on the road a lot of the time. And then fortunately getting a local gig at, at Coca-Cola, uh, I just, I, I was looking for something else. And uh, I always like shocking the system. So why not enter a brand new field in an area that uh, I don't have, ex I didn't have experience with, yeah. which was building an app. Uh, mainly it was all these corporate, uh, um, you know, types of, uh, you know, client server type technologies that I just was lured to it. And I said, you know, I've got some savings. This is, this is the time to, to make an impact where my kids can remember me for, uh, for actually making a difference in the world. Mm -hmm. Did you have any other ideas prior? So let's say as you were kind of mulling, I'm assuming it wasn't, it took many years for you to finally like, <laughs> you know, like maybe muster the courage, maybe that's the wrong way to say it, but like to, to probably make the transition. Did you have other things you wanted to do or were you struggling with finding like, what's my purpose? What, you know, what am I going to do in, in this world? Definitely struggling to find purpose. I had just done management consulting. So to move from building these corporate performance management dashboards on Excel that hooked to databases to uh, these AWS data centers where we're taking these on-prem um, big server rooms and just moving into the cloud uh, that I just felt like that was going to continue on and on. And I just didn't love it. So I could one look for another consulting gig. And there was a lot of them that were around at the time. They, they didn't quite pay the same amount that I, I had when I was at, at Coca-Cola, but they're, they're pretty close. I just, in, I think it was March of 2018 when my, you know, I think it was the third of March was my last day at, at Coke. Uh, I just, 
I wasn't interested in doing that again. And I, I, I started looking around passively for consulting opportunities in that space. But um, for the six months prior to that, I had been chatting with, uh, with Stu, who's a neuroscientist, who I was fascinated about, who had this personal experience. And something was just pulling me towards that. It was just the allure of the unknown. It was just something totally different. And uh, I knew that, as I, as I mentioned, just to make an impact, um, it was not something on my radar six months before that that random conversation with him while he was walking his dog. But I just, I had this kind of brewing in my head and uh, it, it just seemed like the right time to uh, to, to try it out. Yeah. So was that, that was a serendipitous conversation? You just kind of ran into him on the street or like, did you know this guy or... Yeah, good question. So we uh, we both lived in the same community in Decatur, Georgia, it's a subdivision of Atlanta. For we had lived together uh, for about seven years. I had this you know corporate traveling job, and he was in academia uh, for the most part. And you know at that time I was like, what? Why do I need to talk to a scientist? Why, why do I have to go back to school? I already graduated from school. Why, why do I need that world anymore? So it was just this very myopic, really one, one-sided one view that I had had up until that point where I told my, I convinced myself that why do I need to talk to these other people? And then all of a sudden I said, come on, why, why are you being so you know, closed-minded? There's there's other viewpoints. There's, there's other types of... Uh, you know, things out there that, that, that haven't explored yet that uh, you really should start thinking about. So it was kind of these confluence of, of factors that came together. And, you know, he he was walking his dog, looked, looked lonely while he was doing it. And I, I just told myself, all right, let's let's strike up a conversation. I know nothing about neuroscience. He probably doesn't know a lot about me. Um, so why don't we just start to try to form a, you know, I didn't even know anything would turn into it except yeah. for a five minute conversation. But that five minute conversation really spurred a lot of ideas and uncovered a lot of complementary skill sets that um, we both were kind of yearning for this new opportunity. So that's that's how it started. When did the idea for like what map habit is currently was that born in those six months kind of a conversation that was the idea totally different when you started? Yeah, great question, Brian. So that it did start within those six month periods, uh, that six month period, it, it really was Stu's idea as a neuroscientist and some of the work that he had been doing on the side, which is basically leveraging a concept called mind mapping. Mind mapping is a way of um, visually unpacking ideas using uh, these these branches uh, to a, a central theme. So if you can think of, for example, making coffee, um, the central theme will be, you know, making coffee. And then there would be coffee grinds, there would be, uh, you know, a, a carafe of water, there would be, you know, heating it up, and you have to kind of sequence them visually so that you can you can understand that. And there is these pretty complicated mind mapping software that was used by think tanks and universities, just really complicated stuff. But the, the idea behind it was very little text, use basically colors and, and and basically these 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 branches on a central theme to construct a kind of a progression of events. So he had been doing that in these various facilitated 
you know, talks and, and speaking engagements uh, to kind of bring different universities together, to bring different scientists and, and business people together. And I, I thought that was really interesting. And uh, I, I thought that, you know, my uncle, if we just had a series of pictures for making his favorite quesadilla on, you know, what to do, step one, two, three, four, five, he probably could could make that quesadilla on his own and not have to ask for help every time uh, if he had something like that. And that's just one example. It could be anything around your house or if you're going somewhere, if you just had that that cheat sheet that, you know, I'll raise my hand. I I did a little bit of that in, uh, in middle school, uh, you know, in order to get by. But, uh, you know, those kind of short specific instructions to get through a specific concept or, or task I just felt that people with um, who, who struggle to remember things, who are under stress, would benefit from that. And where where I came in was, you know, he used that in a, a practical sense for for facilitation. I'm the app guy, or I'm, I'm the one who's good at technology, so I could really visualize how we can turn that into a, a product that then could be, uh, you know, enabled for people who uh, who are who are really struggling right now. And that's that's kind of where it started. It. Is the goal because I'm I don't know the space that well, and neuroscience is still a young subject for me. Um, I'm a novice there. If if you put those cues, so you have the pictures, or whatever, is the goal that what does that help them relearn over a period of time, or is it more just it's kind of like the crutch that's there? It's helpful, but there's not like an improved. I'm kind of curious of how that helps over time, if it does at all, or if yeah. that's not maybe what it's meant for. Yeah, well, there's fortunately, there's a lot of applications for it. Uh, one, it's for people who, you know, just want a way to remember the steps in which to do something they would repeat multiple times. Um, so one practical way for, for me, who, you know, I don't have any cognitive impairments, but I always forget which input on my audio video receiver goes to the Nintendo Switch that goes to our DVR that goes to now the, the Oculus that, you know, hits up with just the regular TV. And, you know, it, it was just hard to remember that. So there's there's very practical ways that for myself, I can basically retain information uh, in, in, in a cheat sheet format that can be very useful for me. The way we translate that to someone with dementia is we we work with the support partner or their, their caregiver, for example, and understand, you know, what are some of the things that made this person tick in their life? Mm -hmm. What are some of the uh, needs and, you know, current abilities that they have where they would benefit from learning something new or relearning something that they've lost and, and really break it down into a step-by-step -step and personalize it for that home. So it actually can be something that someone with mild to moderate dementia can relearn how to, you know, brush their teeth or how to do the FaceTime with their kids. Uh, or it could be, you know, once they actually get to the point where maybe they can't follow a paper-based printout that has those steps or even a, an app altogether on a smart device, then it becomes something that a caregiver can, can utilize for education. Maybe they're witnessing, you know, changes where, you know, as the day goes on, someone just gets really irritable as the sun goes down. This is called sundowning. People actually become scared and frightened once the mm -hmm. disease uh, starts taking hold. Mm -hmm. uh, and this can be actually something very useful for a caregiver when they're seeing someone go through that. There are certain techniques and there's ways to 
interact and, and and really kind of deflect some of those those um the, those feelings of fear into things that can be actually be constructive and positive. So these micro learnings that are available at the point of of time that they're needed, it then shifts from someone who uses the app or the paper-based printouts for learning or relearning new things to something that can help a, you know, a support person, whether it be a case manager, a caregiver, or, you know, a, uh, someone who's using it on their own with, with basically access to information when they need it. Hmm. That's really intriguing. Uh, Cause I, you know, I, I wouldn't even ever have thought of that. Actually, my grandfather had dementia and I remember some of those latter years were, were challenging for sure. You know, think back, you know, I think back of like, Oh yeah, I can probably see that very useful, you know, to be able to give them that, um, that capability. Um, before we get into building the business a little bit, I have to, I have to ask because I know if someone's going to beat me up on it, if I don't ask, you weren't the single guy anymore back from Oh three, you had a family, like, how did that discussion happen of like, hey, I'm going to leave this job, maybe pays well to actually take this leap of faith. Can you share a little about the support internally, kind of how that uh, those conversations went down? Yeah. So what what I thought would happen and what I promised <laughs> to my wife when we were doing the initial phases and what actually happened, totally different. Uh, I thought that, you know, this year's worth of savings that I had, you know, would be plenty. I'd be able to just from an idea, convince my family and friends uh, to to give us funding so that we can build a minimal viable product in a couple months and start selling it off to, you know, anyone in the aging space. They all could use it and it'll it'll just go gangbusters just because the concept makes a lot of sense. Uh, That didn't work at all. Um, so I, I did leave a, you know, a, a six figure job to basically go from a nice chunk of uh, annual income to zero uh, very quickly and it to actually adjust your quality of life and adjust some of the kind of the recurring expenses we, we had two homes at the time, uh, it was it was really hard. And, uh, you know, fortunately, I had a great support network. Uh, my, my wife is uh, very opposite for me. I am a big risk taker and I enjoy uh, taking on new, new challenges and going into the unknown. She's the opposite. She likes comfort, stability. Uh, she invests in boring things and I invest in shiny objects and uh, do my research. But it's it's that kind of yin and yang that, that really helped kind of uh, counterbalance you know, about the year and a half I had to take before we got our first big NIH grant where I could finally take a salary. Uh, it was really me basically depending on, on, on my wife for, um, for, for support, both moral and, and, and financial, which, you know, I'll always uh, thank her for. But that's one thing that I, I did, I totally underestimated the amount of time it would take to monetize the idea and how few of my friends and family would invest in in me as an entrepreneur who has had a lot of success. Um, they, they just didn't come flocking like I thought. So that was the big thing that uh, I didn't anticipate. And if I were to do it over again, I probably wouldn't have went all in on Map Habit as early as I did. I probably would have gotten one of those other consulting gigs and, mm-hmm. and kept that going on the side and, and really built it up uh, like I now uh, try to coach other entrepreneurs, build up your, your your side gig to the point where it's just becoming too much for you to do part time. It was at that point I should have went full time on Map Habit, maybe six months um, into having that other mm-hmm. job. But 
you know, those are things that you learn, um, you know, after the fact, hindsight's twenty twenty. But yeah, uh, Rebecca uh, being my, my support network and, and keeping on encouraging me and uh, and not double, you know, uh, second guessing, uh, it allowed me to really focus on, uh, on, on really putting in a plan and, and uh, you know, flawless execution on, on taking the idea into building a product. And did, so how did you decide, were you building the app yourself or did you guys, did you get a, any developers to help you? Like, how did that, I'm assuming Stu's not a developer, so he probably didn't get involved there, but like, you know, so I'm just curious how that, you know, uh, those, those tasks if you will, get uh, divvied up? Yeah, good, great question. So yes, uh, Stu, the neuroscientist, is not a mobile application developer. So he was leaning on, on me for that. And uh, I had a lot of project management experience where my job for the those 15, 16 years leading up to starting MapHabit was to listen, to understand requirements, to build out functional specifications, which could then go to a, um, a development team who would design, build the product. We would then test it out. Uh, we would go back and, and redesign and test, and then you would ultimately deploy to production. So that that I had down. What I didn't have down was all the intricacies and nuances of mobile application development. So. Um, even when I was consulting at Coca-Cola and these other places, I was always the project manager as opposed to the one doing the build. So we we did hire developers very early on, and that was the right move. We hired a uh, an offshore firm, which uh, was a, a great low-cost option at the time. Uh, in hindsight, we should have had a little bit more onshore development expertise from the U.S. because what I learned user experience, user interface design is, is so critical. And if you go strictly offshore while you think you're saving time, you can always fix it later. There are things that get under interwoven in, in what you're doing that uh, it creates a lot of rework. Um, and we're, we're kind of unraveling some of that now. But yeah, so we, we hired uh, developers. I, I had never intended to develop it on my own. Um, but really translating from being a project manager in the corporate space to a uh, product manager for building at mobile application development, I was very naive thinking they were the same thing and they are absolutely not the same thing. What What are some of the, if someone's listening in, what are a couple things you'd reference to look out for? I guess if you're, you know, on the fence of those two different, uh, you know, roles. Yeah, well, one thing that's common is, is critical thinking uh, skills. So you need to be able to like I was mentioning, understand requirements and build um, build specifications around that. Uh, what I didn't realize, things like um, developing the, the the buttons on an app and and understanding where hotspots are on the, the screen, like those small things that you don't tell an offshore developer. They're not going to do it unless you 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 tell them that that's what you want. Yeah. Um, the 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 navigation from um, from basically one page to the next. You know, we we thought that we had that uh, all all nailed down, but that's it's very different. You really have to kind of create these wireframes and user interface designs, cookable prototypes. It's it's a fairly lengthy process versus in project management and implementing software you've done over and over. You, you kind of know exactly what to do there. So that was, I guess, part of my lack of under understanding of, of kind of the agile software methodology within building apps. Uh, it is very different. And then also just having both a, 
um, a web platform for some of the kind of more uh, user creation and, and, and setup versus the app where they're doing everything else. Having those two different um, um, areas that, that creates a lot of friction and confusion amongst users. Mm. I didn't realize that. Um, and that's what I now learn is is kind of best practice within uh, product management. So there, there are little things like that that we've learned along the way, and I'm sure more will pop into my head, um, where product management on mobile applications is very different than project management for corporate America. How challenging was it, and, and I'm just kind of thinking of this, where the, the clientele, if you will, is is an older population, where you know if I give my nine-year-old a brand new piece of technology, he'll probably figure it out in like five minutes, you know, these kids these days with their, uh, with the devices, but that's not the same for the older generation. So was that a challenge of in the development process and making sure it fit for the right um, individuals? Uh, yes. So th that is a, a fundamental uh, kind of thing that you have to deal with uh, when you're working with older adults is they haven't necessarily used technology the same way that that we have and, and that our kids are just, you know, it's practically tethered to them. You've got to pull it away from them yeah. uh, in order for them to keep their sanity versus it's the total opposite where there's so much trepidation to use technology as as older adults, um, you you really need to kind of model around that. So, uh, a lot of what we we do with the older adult population, especially those who are in their uh, late seventies and eighties that didn't really use smartphones or tablets as part of their their professional careers, is really focus on a paper based version of our product. Mm. We've we've realized that that is the most uh, effective uh, modality for them to use, and you know, different people that are supporting them, whether they be care managers at a, a managed care organization or a area agency on aging, they're, they're good with the technology. And it really does help with remote monitoring of people that are maybe in rural areas, or um, I think the advent of, of Zoom and the use of it throughout the pandemic, it, it has actually um, improved the uh, exposure and, and interest of using technology for older adults, just because the only way they could see their family members was really through their smartphone or tablet. Mm -hmm. So that has helped us a little bit, but there's still those structural um, issues where, you know, you have to focus on text messages and phone calls as opposed to a push notification with an app. So all those different small, um, you know, considerations we we learned along the way. People weren't just going to flock to what we've built, um, and that's actually part of the reason why uh, we have expanded into the intellectual and developmental disabilities, specifically kids with Down syndrome and autism. Is they love using the platform, and they're the ones that can really help us uh, gamify it and and work through um, different usability uh, to to simplify the steps. Whereas we can't get that kind of feedback working with older adults unless yeah. we're there in person. And a lot of what we do, do is virtual. So we, we have the benefit of two different populations that are now kind of coming together and, and really making our, our, our platform, uh, you know, much more tighter than it had been maybe like a year or two ago. Hmm. How did you, uh, you mentioned, obviously, things didn't happen as quickly as you wanted. How did you keep your sanity? How did, how did you how did you keep going forward and not throwing the towel? Yeah, that's uh, that's one of the hardest hardest part. Um, as, you know, taking that example of getting paid, 
you know, you, you, you need, you need money to, to pay the bills and to not have that coming in. It can be demoralizing, especially when I've had uh, a really successful time doing friends and family, private placements and people investing in multifamily real estate or investing in cannabis companies, for example, um, that, uh, that had, you know, high conviction rates. It was a lot easier to get people to invest in that versus a, a neuroscience based company that's impacting a, a segment of the market that's growing at the fastest rate, uh, in, in the world right now. It's a 65 plus, um, I thought it would be a slam dunk and it wasn't. So, you know, failing early on on fundraising, not being able to to monetize it as quick as possible. The pandemic happened within three months of us releasing our, our product when we signed on a large uh, or fairly mid-sized senior living company and going gangbusters uh, January through March, getting them up and going to to March 2020, happening where they would absolutely no interest at all with with touching the app or, or or interacting with us it was all about ppe and just you, you know what it was like the early days in the pandemic it was it was disastrous so um we we had a lot of stumbling blocks uh throughout that process and uh we had to pivot significantly away from for example the in-person uh assisted living and uh in in that area and really focus more on uh decentralized uh, and, and basically making everything virtual and and supporting people uh, um, through uh, through the the interwebs if you will so there was just a lot of pivots both on understanding our our, our customers and, and 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 you know making our product accessible motivating the team as well when when they're going through everything with, with covid had to cut salaries by over 30 percent twice. Fortunately, we we resumed and got everything back to where it was within a year. But, you know, it's just there was one thing after the next. Uh, but I'm so fortunate that my co-founder, he was unflustered by that. And, and having that positivity from him um, really helped me kind of keep the pressure on and, and, and drive the team. If if I didn't have that um, that kind of second sounding board and, and him not wanting to give up, that that just fueled me to, to, to continue. So. Um, yeah, it was it was really tough the past uh, three years, but uh, we we stuck with it and kept kept applying for these grants that, in retrospect, took about a year, a thousand hours each to apply for. Yes, a thousand hours, but they're multi million dollar grants that we ultimately got, and it was because of that persistence and being heads down and focusing on you know what this this population needs and and building um, an assistive technology that can can support people now and, and into the future, uh, you know, we've, we're, we're now in a much, uh, much better place and you just have to, you know, grit it out sometimes. Yeah. One of the last things I want to ask you was, and you mentioned the team a little bit, when did you decide, so to you and Stu, when did like number three come in? When, when did, cause I know that's a tough decision to like, if one, if you can't pay someone, I'm, 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 I'll let you kind of answer how, how you want, but like how they actually got in the, in the and then how have you scaled the team up from there? How did those decisions work in the early days? Yeah, great, great question, Brian. So early on, it's it's you and your your co-founder. You you come up with the name of the company. You, you get your logo. You could then incorporate and and, and make it official, if you will. Uh, but. At that point of time, while he basically is an expert in grant writing, publication, clinical research, you know, the healthcare system, myself on, you know, fundraising, taking ideas and, and building products, uh, we we kind of 
bootstrapped and, and did as much as we could on our own. We'd hire consultants, hired fractional resources. And we, we still continue to because it's really hard to pay market salary when you know, you're not yet at the point revenue-wise where you can justify doing that. Uh, so it's just uh, you constantly have to have to challenge yourself to do more with less. Mm -hmm. And uh, the first hire number three that was full time that wasn't just a, a contractor that we we had for a specific project um, or a small retainer was uh, fortunately through the Georgia Research Alliance. They gave us our first grant uh, probably in late 2018, uh, which was still within the first year of, of starting MapHabit, which allowed us some, some external funding where we can do that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, any of the money that we were able to do from friends and family, which the first year we got like 45,000, um, that's, that's barely enough to just get the legal stuff and, and get our patent, et cetera, underway. But um, getting some of those initial grants to bring on staff to, to actually kind of formulate processes and procedures, uh, we, we were fortunate to do that within, you know, six, six to eight months of starting it. All right. So if someone's getting started today, they have an idea, they're, they're trying to figure out, you know, maybe if they had a serendipitous conversation with their stew, uh, whoever that might be, um, what advice would you give them? Any insight, maybe it's a quote you live by, anything specific to, to help nudge them forward to get started? Yeah, I mean, if if you really believe in something and that there is a problem that's out there that should be solved, absolutely go go after it. But go after it cautiously at first and think about it from all the different angles that you can. You know, how do I make money with this? Who is going to buy this? Who is going to use it? What are the competitors out there? You really have to think and, and, and make sure that you, you don't have to have all the answers up front, but you should have an idea of where you want to go. And you should kind of know what are some of your, your blind spots and, and, and work towards uh, fixing those. Uh, also, you know, everything takes longer and it costs more than you expect. So I thought I'd be able to get a salary in six months. It took 18 months. I thought we can build our minimal viable product within thirty to fifty thousand dollars. It took one hundred and fifty to two hundred thousand mm -hmm. to to actually get it going. So, you know, you you just have to plan for that, uh, both from building up that cash runway, uh, but you, you have to be resilient and you have to be able to swallow your pride. If something's not working, yeah, you can you can try a little bit longer, but you can't spend too much time. If it's not working, cut it off. Figure out what um, um, what what the, the the proper pivot or or what the right um, you know right path should be. Hmm. It's gonna be, you're gonna have a lot of sunk costs and you're gonna have to um, learn from your mistakes and, and make a lot of mistakes early so that you can you know build a nice foundation that you can uh, build from. So those are just some of the things that that come to mind. There's uh, there, there's a lot of resiliency that you, that you need, but. Um, you know, constantly, uh, if, if you stick with it and have the heart and the passion, other people will, will see that and uh, they'll believe in you. And we're so fortunate to have uh, a lot of people that did that for us. And we expect uh, to pay it forward once we're wildly successful and I can be on the other side of the table. Yeah. Well, that's a great point. And you mentioned earlier, too, just to kind of layer that back in is you don't have to quit your job tomorrow. Right. Build on the side think about it, you know, spend a few hours per week, maybe, or a little bit more, however, however much you have available and start mapping out the idea and see if there's a fit. And if there is some traction, I think then you start making those decisions, but you know, you don't have to do it right away just because you're on a whim, if you will, you know? 
Yep. So exactly. <laughs> yeah. So it's steady. So where can everyone find you online? Where can they say hello if they wanted to? What's the best spot? Appreciate that. Yeah. So uh, go to www.map, M-A-P, as in treasure map, habit, H-A-B-I-T.com. Uh, we're seeking out uh, managed care organizations, payers, which are insurance companies that support older adults in the long-term services and supports and the Medicare Advantage space. Uh, and we'll have a direct-to-consumer offering uh, both for the older adults with uh, with uh, cognitive impairments like uh, Alzheimer's disease and dementias and the intellectual and developmental disability like Down syndrome and autism. Uh, so we, we serve those populations. And uh, please follow us on social, especially LinkedIn. That's my my favorite. Uh, but yeah, we, uh, we're, we we love to help others. You know, anyone that's listening here, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn. I, I try to be as generous as, as possible with my time and and give uh, as, as much advice as possible because it, it's hard and, and to have mentors and people uh, around you to to kind of guide you throughout the way is is really important. Yeah. Well, Matt, I appreciate you coming on the podcast, man. This is a lot of fun, and uh, thanks so much for sharing your uh, your journey with everyone. Likewise, Brian. Appreciate it. Hey everyone, and just one more quick thing before you head off on your day. If you are enjoying this podcast, I'd encourage you to head over to my website, brianandreco.com, and hit the subscribe button in the top right corner. There you'll find my newsletter, which goes out once a week, and is more of a digest of various things that I've uncovered, whether it's a podcast, an article, or a video, something of that nature to help you get more informed and get started and keep moving forward on your journey. Secondly, my blog, which goes out three times a week on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday mornings, is more of a micro blog, one to five minute reads to get you thinking a little bit differently and help you along the way. I really am grateful for you being here on this episode and thanks for the support of the podcast. And if I can be a resource in any way, please don't hesitate to reach out. Thanks again and hope to connect soon. Take care.